Hello, my name is Paul. It is really great to be with you this morning. I want to add my word of commendation to Dan's note about Foster the City as well. Uh, I spent several years helping them as part of their church partnership team. Many of you know that my wife and I have two adopted children that we adopted from foster care. And it is just an amazing thing when people of faith care for the vulnerable in their homes. Christians have been doing that for literally 2,000 years, and it's a great tradition. So if that interests you, I'd encourage you to get involved. Well, this morning, I want to start with a question. And the question has to do with these two objects. In my right hand, I'm holding a feather, recently plucked from one of my own chickens, if you would like to know. And I'm holding this hammer, which actually was used to build the chicken coop. So there's, you know, some connection. Now, my question is, if I were to drop these two objects of different weights, discounting air resistance, so let's imagine we've created a little vacuum here on the stage, which would hit the stage first? Now, before you answer, I want us to think about how we might arrive at an answer to that question. So what methods might we use to determine the answer of our feather and our hammer? If you were living in the third century BC and your name was Aristotle, your method would be to sit down and think really hard. That's what he did. And he reasoned that the heavier object should fall faster. And his opinion reigned as truth for about 1,500 years. Now, if you were a Christian, you think, well, the Bible has all the truth. So maybe the Bible could tell me whether the feather or the hammer would fall first. And so you pick up the Bible and you search the scriptures to find out some reference to objects of different weights. You come across Proverbs 20.10 that says, unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. <laughs> and you say, man, I just shouldn't even be asking this question. God doesn't want me to know. I'm just going to let it be. But then, maybe you live in the 16th century, and you're a man with the incredible name of Galileo Vincenzo Banayuti de Galilei. I think Scott Grant, maybe he's over there, would have said the Italian a lot better than I. But nonetheless, your name were Galileo de Galilei. And you decide that maybe you could come up with an answer by observing what actually happens. He figures, why don't we try it and see? So the story goes that Galileo actually went up to the top of the Tower of Pisa, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and he dropped two balls of the same shape of different weights to see what would happen. Now that story is a little bit legendary. People aren't really sure if that's exactly what happened. But nonetheless, Galileo observed reality, and he came up with a theory about what might be true about that reality. And he said that actually, different objects of different weights fall at the same speed. Now, I worked with our worship planning team. I, I was trying to do it for you. I wanted to create a vacuum here, but that's actually really hard to do. So I was going to get a ladder and your balls, and that was complicated. Then one of the other Explore God fa pastors found this video which we're going to watch now. Well, in my left hand, I have a, a feather. 
in my right hand a hammer. And I guess one of the reasons uh, we got here today was because of a gentleman named Galileo a long time ago who made a rather significant discovery about falling objects in gravity fields. And we thought that uh, where would be a better place to confirm his uh, findings than on the moon. And uh, so we thought we'd try it here for you. Uh, the feather happens to be appropriately a falcon feather for our falcon. And I'll uh, drop the two of them here and hopefully they'll hit the ground at the same time. How about that? That's a video from 1971 from the Apollo 15 lunar mission. Uh, sorry, the 4K version got lost somewhere. Um, but think about what you just saw. Think about what you saw, a human being standing on the surface of the moon, demonstrating a scientific principle that had been discovered 400 years prior, 500 years prior. Think about the science involved in getting that person up to the moon, in recording the event, and then even today, the fact that now, 50-plus years later, we can watch a retelling, a recounting of that event here in this room in 2023. That's incredible. The question we're asking this morning is how do you make sense of that with the truth of the Bible. We're trying to address the basic question, are faith and science compatible? Do they fight each other or do they work together? We're doing this as part of our Explore God series. Uh, we've been in this now for several weeks. We're joining with over 150 other churches all throughout the Bay Area that are preaching through the same series of questions. Our hope is that if you count yourself as a follower of Jesus, that these sermons would help you to engage in a deeper way with some of these questions that uh, often are challenging to faith. And that if you don't count yourself as a follower of Jesus, that these might help you to see a way to work through some of the questions that may be preventing you from putting your faith in Christ. Now, this is a really important question in our culture because there are a lot of people around us that claim faith and science to be incompatible. So whether it has to do with creation or evolution or opinions about COVID or climate care, there's all sorts of noise around us where people say, either I believe in faith or I believe in science. And our job this morning is to figure out whether those two really are incompatible. I was actually really glad to get this sermon to preach because of all the questions that make faith difficult, personally, I think this is one of the easier ones to resolve. I think that when you really understand what God is doing in the scriptures and what we are doing when we try to follow the discipline of science, you arrive at this incredibly beautiful picture of how faith and science work together to uncover different kinds of truths through different kinds of means and answer different kinds of questions. Now, here's our approach we're going to take this morning. First, we're going to look at how faith and science actually work together. We're going to talk about how they really are very compatible in a lot of ways. 
Then we're going to say, well, if that's true, what about all the problems? Why would people pit them against each other? And we're going to explore that question a little bit. And then to wrap up, we're really going to try to answer the question, how then could we live? How could we move forward holding both of those things together? And I want to remind you that as is true with all of these messages, our goal is not to answer a question. We're not trying to come at some intellectual knowledge or check a box that we understand something. Our goal in this place is always to encounter the living God. We believe he is here. We believe his spirit is at work in us and around us. And so our goal this morning is to open ourselves up to what God may be wanting for us individually and as a community, and hopefully to see him change lives. Let's pray to that effect. God, we're so grateful just for the privilege of gathering together, of singing great songs, worshiping who you are, of being in a community of people that are earnestly seeking truth. As we look at this tricky question, we pray that your spirit would enlighten us, that it would work in our hearts and among us as a community, and that you would make yourself known to us in a powerful way. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're going to start at the beginning. This book, the Bible, opens with a book that we call Genesis. That's the Greek word for beginnings. And in the book of Genesis is a story of how God created all that we see. And it turns out that a lot of the supposed conflict between faith and science come from how we might choose to read the book of Genesis. So we're going to start by reading it just a little bit. This is how the Bible opens. The first two verses of the Bible, Genesis 1, 1 to 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the story begins by saying that God is the one who created everything, and then it moves into a description of what reality was like prior to God taking action, before God did anything. And the description was of a, a universe that was chaotic, that was formless, that had no order, that was unpredictable, formless and void. You have the picture of the spirit hovering over what seemed to be turbulent waters. But the story continues with God speaking. Listen to verses three to five. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And so we see the contrast with how when God speaks, he calls into the chaos and he creates order. He makes it rational. He calls light good. There's a predictable rhythm of evening and morning and day and night has begun. And so this big principle in the first few verses of the Bible are that God is a God who speaks into what is chaotic and brings order and rationality out of it. And that 
principle that God brings order was unheard of in the ancient world. In the ancient world, the gods were unpredictable. You never knew what they were going to do. You had to try things because you never knew whether they were angry or mad or happy. And so you were constantly worried. But the Hebrew Bible tells of a God who is rational, who operates according to consistent principles, who eventually tells his people what it takes to live a healthy life according to principles that are repeatable and observable. And that basis, that worldview, that way of understanding reality is eventually what led to the foundation of what we call science. Because people eventually reasoned, well, if God is a God of order and he established the universe to run according to principles that are predictable, then maybe we can use our rationality to understand the rational world that God made. And so when we get around in history to the Enlightenment and the uh, Renaissance, people start to use their rationality and use experiments like Galileo did to understand the universe God created. Sociologist Rodney Stark, he wrote a book called uh, The Victory of Reason. He says, the rise of science rested entirely on religious foundations, and the people who brought it about were devout Christians because they believed in a God of order. Now, about 100 years later than the beginnings of science came along a theologian. His name was John Calvin. Some of you have heard his name. And in the 16th century, he actually took things a little farther. Listen to what he said. But if the Lord had been pleased to assist us by the work and ministry of the ungodly in physics, dialectics, mathematics, and other similar sciences, let us avail ourselves of it, lest by neglecting the gifts of God spontaneously offered to us, we be justly punished for our sloth. I don't know if you're catching what he's saying. What he says is, not only can we discover how the universe works, but we have an obligation to, because God has given us the gifts to do so. And if we fail to use those gifts, we might be subject to God's punishment for our laziness. So then, we can see that when the Bible reveals the universe to us, it talks about who God is, who we are. It describes the creation. It describes a God of order. It describes humankind as the centerpiece of God's creation, occupying a unique role on this planet. But the Bible doesn't tell us the wavelength of the light that was good. It doesn't tell us that the waters that the Spirit hovered over were actually made of smaller particles that are arranged in very particular geometric formations that themselves are actually made of smaller particles, etc., etc. It doesn't tell us about how biology works. It doesn't tell us about what the sun was doing or the fact that a day is actually the Earth rotating once on its axis. And so we can see that faith in the Bible and science are actually answering different questions. So that faith answers the questions of who and why. And science answers the question of how. Listen to this quote from Stephen Hawking. He's a famous astrophysicist and a devout atheist. But listen to what he says. 
the usual approach of science of constructing a mathematical model cannot answer the questions of why there should be a universe for the model to describe. Why does the universe go to the bother of existing? So Hawking acknowledges, even though he doesn't believe in God, that science is incapable of answering the questions of why and who. And yet he certainly believes that science is a powerful method to get at some of the answers to the question of how. So we can see then that faith and science began together, that they inspired, that faith inspired science, and that together they can be used to answer different kinds of questions. And if that's true, then if I've convinced you that they're basically complementary, why do people assume that they're incompatible? What leads to the problem that we're addressing today? And my suggestion to you is this, that people of faith and people of science are both truth seekers. They have a strong desire to understand truth. And truth seekers often get zealous about their particular method of determining truth. So that sometimes truth seekers can tend to overextend their method and use it in arenas that actually it was not meant to apply to. So that a large part of the conflict between faith and science come when each discipline oversteps its bounds to answer the questions that the other discipline was meant to answer. So let's see how this might play out. Scientists sometimes ignore what Stephen Hawking said early in his career. He actually changed his mind later. We'll talk about that in a minute. And they try to use the discipline of science to answer questions of ultimate purpose. But doing that is like using a fish as a hammer. The nail is not going to go in, and your tool gets destroyed. For instance, listen to this quote. This is a quote from the National Association of Biology Teachers, articulating a position from 1996 that they've since slightly modified. But this is how they articulated the definition of evolution. They said evolution is an unsupervised, impersonal, unpredictable, and natural process. Now, based on what we understand about science, is it capable of determining whether or not there is a who there? And I would suggest that this statement represents an overstepping of the discipline of science to answer the question of who, to claim that evolution is an unsupervised process when there's actually nothing in the toolbox that science offers to make that claim. Now, let's be charitable to the people that wrote this because they are trying to teach children. They are trying to sort through the chaos of our world to try to apply the truth that they understand to the world that they live in. And they're doing the best that they can. But sometimes, even when people are doing the best that they can, they overstep the bounds that their discipline requires them to remain in. Now, it helps to understand for science that science is built on what people call methodological naturalism. That's a big word, but what it means is the idea that if you're going to practice science, you're going to assume that the laws of nature pretty much always work the same way and that nothing exists outside the laws of nature to change them. 
you're going to make the assumption that if water flows downhill on Tuesday, it's going to flow downhill on Wednesday. That there's not somebody up there changing the rules of the game every minute of every day. That's called methodological naturalism. For the sake of the method, we're going to assume that science, the rules of nature, are consistent, so that we can discover them. But sometimes. Scientists slip into what's called philosophical naturalism. That's a fancy way of saying it's not just the assumption for the sake of the method of science; it's the deeply held belief that nothing else exists. And I would argue that that's an example of science overstepping its bounds, attempting to answer the question of who and why, when it really should stick to the question of how. Now it turns out that scientists aren't the only ones to sometimes overstep their bounds. Sometimes diligent, well-intentioned interpreters of the Bible, because they are zealous for seeking truth, overstep the bounds that biblical interpretation might place on them. I'm going to put up this statement. This is from a website regarding、um, articulating a Christian worldview of origins. And this particular view says this: the Earth is only a few thousand years old. That's a fact, plainly revealed in God's Word. Now, my purpose here this morning is not to get into a debate about the age of the Earth. It's a contentious issue, so I want to focus on the second part of this statement, not the first. Given that the Bible is a book of mixed genres, given that. Really smart Christians come out on very different sides of the topic of the age of the Earth. It seems to me an overstatement of the bounds of biblical interpretation to claim that a position on the age of the Earth is a fact, plainly revealed by Scripture. Again, we want to be charitable because this person is probably trying to sort through all the chaos. They're probably trying to defend a belief in God because they love Christ and they want to make Christ known, and so they're trying to do their best. But this is a case where they may have overstepped the bounds of their discipline. And what often happens is that because faith and science sometimes speak on similar topics, they start to get threatened by each other. They start to get defensive. And people, when we feel threatened, we get defensive and we attack back, and we we tend to overreact, and we tend to say things that might be actually stronger than we actually have a right to say because we're passionate about the thing we're trying to defend. So what's helpful is to realize that from a biblical worldview, science is not a threat to faith, and faith is not a threat. To science, that they actually work together, that both can lead to a deep understanding of the nature of the universe and the person of God, and that when we operate in that way, we move forward with a kind of humility that is required of us from both disciplines. We talked yesterday about how, when we read the Bible, we are trying to understand how a divine being who created the universe is revealing himself to us through words, and it is incredible that we get to encounter God through those words. But we are always aware that that we're not seeing everything, and when we pursue science, science, by its very nature, 
runs experiments, makes observations, forms theories, and tests them. And if they prove to be true, holds them as true until someone else comes along to prove them untrue. So that both faith and science are operating with a sense of humility, doing the best we can with the knowledge we have before us, but always aware of our limitations. My sister is a physician, and I remember talking to her years ago when she was in med school, and her telling us, you know, every day in med school, I am learning so much. It's like a fire hose, all the information I'm learning. But also, every day in med school, I'm becoming more and more aware of how much we just don't know about the human body and how it works. So that her knowledge was going up at like this rate, but her awareness of how much knowledge there was was going up at that rate. <laughs> and so every day, even though she was learning so much, she was more and more deeply aware of our limitations of understanding and capabilities. That's good faith and good science. Pursuing truth, answering questions, doing the best we can, but ultimately being humble with our observations. So how do we put that all together? How do we put that all together in a way that we can move forward and live well as people of faith and as people of science? Well, as I was preparing this message, it struck me that both faith and science are fueled by a sense of wonder. That each of them starts with a sense of looking at something we don't quite understand and then having a desire to understand it and moving forward with that desire. The Psalms are a book in the Old Testament of the Bible that are mostly poems, uh, probably written to music that would be used as songs for the community of Israel to sing to God. So here's one of those Psalms. This is Psalm 8. And listen to what the poet says. This is verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I don't know if you resonate with that sense of wonder of seeing the glory of creation and feeling small and wondering at the power of God and our relative insignificance on this planet. But then the poet continues in verses 5 and 6, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And so the poet speaks of the fact that despite the relative insignificance of humankind, God seems to have given us capability and authority on this planet that is unique, that turns out to be a great responsibility that we bear to use the gifts God has given us to understand our world and to become wise stewards of it. Perhaps this is where Calvin got his idea that God really strongly desires for us to use the gifts given so that we could learn about the world. Now, wonder doesn't usually stop there. As we saw in the Psalms, as you've seen in our lives, wondering at something often leads to curiosity, 
to wanting to find out more about it, to being motivated to explore and ask questions and discover. And that's where I think we can unite faith and science. My encouragement to you is to be curious. Maybe you already believe in Christ. If that's true, then be curious about the things of faith. Explore them. Ask the hard questions. Search the scriptures. Do the hard work. Pray that God would enlighten you. Be curious about who God is. If you don't yet count yourself as a Christian, even more so, explore this idea. Ask yourself, who is out there? What is really true? Why are we here? Ask those hard questions. And I believe absolutely to the depths of my heart that God will make himself known to you. That he will reveal himself to you as the answer to the who and the why. And in either case, if you're interested in science, as I know many of you are, ask the questions. Be curious. Dive deep. Explore. Know that your Efforts in science are not going to be a threat to your faith. That those can work together and both of them can lead you to a stunning picture of who God is and how the universe works. Look at this image. This shows um, a cathedral window, the Rose Cathedral. And right next to it, it shows an aerial view of the double helix of DNA. This is an example of a person of faith being curious about the nature of God and using art to express something about who God is and a scientist being curious about how the universe works and using the tools of science to understand how things operate and they converge in a way that makes you realize that God is behind all of it. So ask your questions. Ask all of them. Don't be afraid of them. Neither questions of faith nor questions of science are a threat to each other. But both of them work in harmony to reveal who God is and how the universe works. I first saw this image at a lecture by a man named Francis Collins, who some of you may know used to be the director of the National Institute of Health. He wrote a book called The Language of God based upon his work um, actually decoding uh, DNA and runs an organization now called BioLogos, which I would commend to you. Their mission is to help people of faith and people of science reconcile and understand how they work together. So I would commend their website to you. They go into lots of depth over dozens of topics that, that some of you may find interesting. They and others are moving forward with this principle of curiosity leading us to the things of God. Let's come back to the video that I showed at the beginning. We saw a man on the moon. Uh, the person that we saw who had the hammer and the feather, his name was David Scott. He was the commander of Apollo 15. The other astronaut that walked on the moon with him, presumably the one holding the video camera, was a man named James Irwin. James had a powerful experience on the moon. When he came home, he described it as a profound spiritual impact on his life. He says, I felt the power of God as I'd never felt it before. Think about that statement. Here was a person who was brought to the moon by the incredible power of science, 
And yet that experience allowed him to feel the power of God. He described looking at the earth from the surface of the moon saying, seeing this has to change a man, has to make a man appreciate the creation of God and the love of God. That's wonder. When he came back from the moon, he had a dramatic conversion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He became a Christian. He dedicated the rest of his life to proclaiming the good news of Jesus to anyone who would listen. And here's one of the things he says, Jesus walking on the earth is more important than man walking on the moon. Are faith and science compatible? They were for James Irwin, one of the few people to walk on the moon. And I know that they are for many of you because I know a lot of your stories. And I know many of you are scientists and researchers that are uncovering truths of the universe and the human body and all sorts of other things in ways that the rest of us can't even understand. Faith and science work together to show us who God is. If you're not a Christian, if you're here because you're exploring God and you're answering these kinds of questions, and if for you, the conflict with science is one of those things you, you just can't get over, I'd love to talk with you more. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to walk alongside of you. I can connect you with people who are a lot smarter than I that, that have thought through these things. So, so please talk to me or one of the other pastors. We believe that God loves us so deeply and wants to know us. And we want that for you. We want to welcome you. I would love for you to be welcomed into the life of faith, of wonder and beauty and awe and majesty that is open before us. One more quote before we're done. This is Albert Einstein. Just before his 50th birthday, he gave an interview and said this, I'm not an atheist. The problem involved is far too vast for our limited minds. We are in the position of a little child entering a huge library filled with books in many languages. The child knows someone must have written those books. Let's be curious. Let's find out who that someone is. Let's open the books and read them, but allow them to point us to the God who created the world we live in. As we continue in worship for our next song, Leanna is going to sing over us some words that bring together the wonder and awe of God with our response to it. We're going to hear phrases like, I can see your heart in everything you've made. And as Leanna sings that, she's going to sing over us and then invite us to join her. Ask God to be at work. Listen to those words and see what God might be speaking in your heart as you hear them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this world we live in, for giving us the capability to understand it in amazing ways, and for the fact that when we ask questions, they all lead to you. May we find you and seek you. May you redeem us, heal us, and change us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>